0: And there I was in Germany, just about to go up to Cambridge at the army's expense to read engineering and had a successful army career in front of me. Uh, And suddenly the thought came to me, well, when I retire as a successful general with a nice fat pension, wouldn't it be nice to become a country parson somewhere? Literally, that's how it came. Mm. And as soon as that thought got into my mind, a second thought thudded into me. Well, if that's what you're meant to be doing, you better do it now and literally it was i put it in the book it was like a volcano exploding exploding inside of me i could literally do no other the profile with premier christianity
1: magazine well, welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio, brought to you by Premier Christianity Magazine. I'm Justin Briley, and my guest today is the Right Reverend Lord Harrys of Pentrogarth, also known as Richard, and uh, he'll be telling us all about a recent autobiography he's penned. Before we get to that, um, just a reminder that Premier Christianity Magazine is your one-stop shop for all the latest in Christian news, uh, reviews cultural commentary and much more you can get the latest issue plus the next two print ones for just five pounds at their website premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe and that link is with today's show if you're listening via podcast well, Richard Harris is the former Bishop of Oxford, a life peer in the House of Lords, and for decades has been a significant voice in the Anglican Church as a Christian thinker, author and broadcaster. And his autobiography, The Shaping of a Soul, has just been published. It more or less tells his story from beginning to, well, not quite end, but up to the present moment, at least. Uh, so welcome along to the programme, Richard. Thank you very much, Justin. Good to be with you. It's lovely to to chat with you. I always enjoy getting to to speak to someone about, you know, the long view, a a life that uh, you've had the chance to think through because you've had the opportunity to put this down in words. Um, Tell us us where things began for you, first of all, Richard. Um, Where did you grow up and was there any sort of
0: Christian influence in your
1: life uh, in those early years?
0: Well, my father was in the army, so we tended to wander around a bit uh, during the Second World War. I had rather a kiss you all because we were in Washington, D.C. We came back, and for some extraordinary reason, my father was posted to Huddersfield. So I've been a lifelong supporter of Huddersfield Town Football Club, (laughs) believe it or or not. And I've always think that it's given me a very good grounding for the Church of England because, as you know, in the 1920s and 30s, they were the Manchester United of their day, the Mm. great club, and the sort of sense of flated glory of the Church of (laughs) England has actually Uh, You know, that equipped me because I've been struggling to support Huddersfield Town uh, ever since then. Lived a bit in the south of England. But my roots, my chosen roots are in Wales because my father's side all come from Wales. There's a tiny family cottage there where my grandfather lived next door. My parents had the one next, hot little cottage next door to that. And with all this moving around and my parents being abroad, always went there for holidays. And it's where I sort of have always felt... Rooted uh mm. so I may be a totally bogus Welshman, but I'd rather be a Welshman than anything else, and you can't be you can't be better than, you know do, do better than than that and also, I've always thought that the you know the Welsh love children, and I always got thoroughly spoilt down there whenever you went down there, you'd given them a bit of money, and when yes. you left, you were given them a bit of money <laughs> um, they enjoyed children, and I'm not sure the English always enjoy their children in the same kind of way. So peripatetic childhood. Mm, um, and any spiritual
1: influences? I mean, obviously, Wales has its uh, Welsh not, chapels. I don't know if you attended them or really, not. As no, a young man. My,
0: uh, I mean, my my parents were not churchgoers. And my mother said that, you know, for 20 years, she couldn't even get my father in a church for Christmas Day. Now, later on, they did become very uh, engaged and committed to the church. My father became a church warden and they, my parents were very supportive of it all the formative time of my upbringing. I can't remember really any Christian influence, but I think my mother must have taught me to pray because uh, she had been sent away to school in to a convent in Belgium, and she always had huge respect for the nuns there. And I think that something must have got in from my mother's milk with me, with me um, because I must have been taught to pray. Because, I, you know, one of my earliest prayers is that I can remember... Praying absolutely desperately that my parents would not be sent abroad yet again, or where I'd be mm. left in this country dumbed at school. So, my faith has never grown up as a result of my prayers being answered in just the way that I wanted. Uh, but so I must have been taught to pray because I can remember praying absolutely desperately that they wouldn't be sent away again.
1: Uh, yes, there, there, there was something there in that sense. I, and it's interesting in your book, you obviously went on to school at Wellington College which uh, was not quite the same place as it is today it should be said but um, it it sounds though that even though there was obviously you know chapel services and so on uh, at the school they didn't really make much impact it was just something to sort of you sort of switched your brain off basically when you went in and woke up again
0: after. That made absolutely no impact at all and you went through the regime of of being um, confirmed and I can still remember my housemaster, my housemaster saying to me, well, my boy, he said, if you thought about Buddhism and these other religions, and I looked him in the eye, I hadn't even heard of the Buddhism, David, Buddhism and sort of said, <laughs> yes, sir, yes, sir. So I went through. But I did feel when I was confirmed, it ought in some way to make a difference to my life. I can remember mm-hmm. that. It ought to make a difference. And it did make a little difference because once a week there was a voluntary service of Holy Communion on an evening, and I remember that time to time going to that and feeling this was something very special. Partly it was no doubt because of the quiet and the peace and it was something where you could just be, be, be still. But I, I think that's been very important. You know, mm. it, it must make a difference in some way and it mm. may not seem to be anything very dramatic, not a martyrdom or, you know, but actually being, being sort of bold enough to step out of the ordinary line, actually to go to a, a voluntary service like that, so it did mm. did make a little difference, though uh, it was very in incoherent, yeah. of course. I mean, certainly,
1: looking at you growing up, you didn't look like the the most obvious candidate for priesthood, or, no, let alone no. being a bishop. So, so what what changed, Richard? Obviously, there was there was some
0: yeah. some
1: point at which things very much did come alive for you. Yeah,
0: well, when I went after Wellington, I, after Wellington, I went to Sandhurst, and I can remember now the crucial thought coming into my mind at Sandhurst if Christianity is true, it must be at the centre of your life. If it's not true, give it up altogether. You can't fiddle around with it. On It it sounds a
1: bit like that maxim from C.S. Lewis, you know, Christianity, um, if true, is the most important thing in the world. If untrue is of no importance, what it cannot be is moderately important.
0: Yeah, exactly. It it was exactly that feeling that I had. If it's true, it must be at the centre of my my life. Now, it didn't actually make a great difference at that point, but somehow... uh, it began to nuzzle into me, and um, when I was uh, commissioned, I found myself rather graduating to the friendship of people who were involved in the church, had been ordained, or wanted to be ordained. I was gradually drawn into in, into this kind of circle, and it gradually, gradually took hold of me. Um, but the actual vocation was quite extraordinary. Um, I remember going to the library one day and getting out a book about Roman Catholic priest entitled Why I Was Ordained. Why I should have picked it up, I don't know. Anyway, I picked it up and read it. And I remember thinking immediately afterwards, wouldn't it be funny if one day I was ordained? And I didn't think any more about it. A few months later, the thought came back. A few months later, the thought came back. And there I was in Germany, just about to go up to Cambridge at the army's expense to read engineering. And had a successful army career in front of me. Uh, and suddenly the thought came to me, well, when I retire as a successful general with a nice fat pension, wouldn't it be nice to become a country parson somewhere? Literally, that's how it came. Mm. And as soon as that thought got into my mind, a second thought thudded into me. Well, if that's what you're meant to be doing, you better do it now. And literally, it was I put it in the book, it was like a volcano exploding, exploding inside of me. I could literally do no other. Um, I wrote to the Queen to resign my question and my commission. I wrote round to the colleges at Cambridge to see if anybody would have me, because I lost my place at Cambridge to read science. Mm. I had to look to find a college to find to take me to to read some theology. Went out with no money at all, instead of being paid for by the army with a nice salary. Went up with no money. It was quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, and the extraordinary thing is, as I point out in the book. I had no role models of clergy. I I knew no clergyman whom I respected. In fact, I rather think and thought a lot of them were rather wimps. I'd never been a member of a Christian congregation, so how on earth can I think this thought? This was a desirable thing to do, Uh, but as I say, like Martin Luther, I could literally do no other. It it is fascinating,
1: And, and in a way, sort of remarkable in contemporary times, that you were selected, that, that, that they sort of let you oh, yes. in in the sense I would that...
0: never have got through now. Yes. I would never have got... I had no church background, no church <laughs> experience, absolutely, absolutely none at all. Uh, but, um, you know, I remember at my selection conference, the, the dear bishop looked me in the eye and, and said, do you feel truly called? Well, I be brought out to stand up straight and look people in the eye? And I said, yes. And I, I did feel truly called. And it, it, I, it I think I was like... truly called
1: obviously this was a very significant moment in your life you recall it with great clarity you describe it as a volcano and this 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 sense that once it was there it was blindingly obvious and you had to pursue this call well what what did your parents make of this though because this was obviously a massive
0: change (laughs) yeah they were appalled quite honestly uh, because this tumult had be going on inside me. I was stationed in Germany, so I wasn't in even week-by-week week contact with them. They didn't really know what was good. They didn't know this kind of spiritual journey that I was on. They thought they'd got me off me. They'd pay for my school fees. They got me launched in life, and that was it. Um, and, they, I mean, they were frankly worried. Very, You know, this is a very headstrong thing to do, and they were very worried indeed. But, however... They have been. They were hugely supportive later on, yes. when they saw that actually uh, it was clearly something which was right. Yes,
1: indeed. You you did meet your wife, Jo, um, yeah. at, at university. Um, again, was by this time was sort of ministry on the cards? Did she know when you met that this was where your life was heading?
0: Well, um, she was a Christian in her own right. was a member of the Cambridge Christian Union and. She, she was a doc training to be a doctor, and she thought that she was going to be called to be a missionary doctor in persia mm. um that she thought was her vocation um, but anyway, we fell in love and um she kindly <laughs> agreed to slot in with me but she pursued her own career as a doctor in this in this country there has always retained a very strong uh, yes prayerful presence uh, in iran
1: yeah uh, i, I you, you say in the book that th- that vote called that vocation that you felt inside and falling in love with joe were, were two of the most significant moments because you you sort of proposed to her i think within a few days of, yeah. of yes. being yes. together yes
0: and <laughs> must be rather headstrong or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go well look um you, you can look back on it now decades later and, and see the way that obviously there was providence in the mix that that obviously things that don't make sense at the time, you know, on paper, obviously have made sense in in the wider sweep of things. But but tell us what, what parish ministry looked like once you had graduated. Um, where, what were the first few churches that you were involved in?
0: Well, I was, uh, first of all, I was a curate in Hampstead, which was a wonderfully happy time. And it was our first married home. We got married in 1963 and I was ordained in 1963. It was at the heart of the the, right at the beginning of the cultural revolution the mm. 1960s, the 1960s were a truly, truly extraordinary time, unlike any decade since the whole world was turned upside down. I lived through all that as a kind of elder brother to the 17 or 18-year-olds who were just moving in, into this into this world. Mm. Uh, and it was a blissfully, blissfully happy time. And I actually spent six years there, including being a university chaplain, but... Uh, uh, you know which I do, but I knew in the end had to move on because a Hampstead is a kind of ivory tower, and mm. I am a believer that in the end you kind of take on the outlook of your environment whether you like it or not, and it obviously is not very good for uh, uh a par- uh, you know a priest actually to take on an outlook which is formed and shaped solely by such a privileged mm. uh, environment
1: so so you you moved on where was the next parish that you
0: well, funny enough. What happened after that was that I, for the one and only time in my life, I knew precisely what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the vicar of a parish in London, a sort of middle city parish. I didn't want a, an eclectic inner city congregation, which is all of one sort. I didn't want to go to a congregation to worship what the enforcer called the great suburban Jehovah. Uh, I wanted a mixed parish in London. And I simply was not offered one. I wasn't given one. Mm. Um, even though a lot of things seemed to be pushed in my direction, nothing seemed right. So eventually I saw an advert to go and lecture in doctrine and ethics at Wells Theological College, and I decided to do that for a few years. And that was absolutely crucible, crucial to the whole of my life, because, as you know, it's only when you start to teach a subject that you actually begin to learn anything about it, really. Mm. And the discipline of lecturing week after week on fundamental Christian doctrine of God and also Christian ethics, provided a basis for so much of what I've done after that. And then after a few years, I got a letter from the Bishop of London at the time, a dry old stick, but clearly a deeply caring man. So he wrote, Dear Richard, I know what you've been looking for, and I think at last it's come up. Mm. Um, It's All Saints Fulham. And it was precisely what I was looking for, a very mixed parish, Mm. parish which obviously had potential for growth, And so uh, Joe and I went to Fulham and we were there for for nine years. There you go. When
1: when you were there, did you begin to sort of think about the other sorts of ministry you could offer into the wider church? Because obviously you went on to have Mm. significant influence in the area of Christian thinking and apologetics and in the media and so on. How how was that starting to be? Be grown in in the well, sort of evangelistic again, like ministry. everything
0: in life by luck or providence whichever way you know whatever <laughs> name you want to uh, to give it it came became about in a very extraordinary way when i was at fulham there was a coup d'etat in greece and the greek generals took over power and they did so in the name of christianity and it so annoyed me mm. i wrote an article showing how this was incompatible with christianity and sent it at the guardian and the features editor at the time, a very nice man called Christopher Driver, whom I didn't know, but he wrote back a very decent letter and said he really liked the article. But had a, did this come out of my own experience of Greece at the time? I had to honestly say no, it was pinned <laughs> off the top of my head. So then I sent it to a magazine which had just been started at the time called New Christian, which was a very lively magazine. Mm. They liked it, and from time to time they asked me to do things. And then I think that when I came back. Uh, I think actually that was when I was in, in, in Hampstead. And when I came back from Wales and to, to Fulham, um, the, the BBC th- perhaps had been reading these or somebody had thought I might do some broadcasting. So they put me on uh, to do Prayer for the Day, which was at 10 to 7 in those days. Uh, and that was 50 years ago. I and mean, the extraordinary mm-hmm. thing is I've now done 50 years of contributions to religious lot on the today program it started in 1972 73 uh and uh, that's obviously been a very significant yes
1: well i have frequently heard you at 10 to 8 in the morning on you know uh thought for the day radio four um i've just i've just interested uh, purely on a radio front you know this is a bit of an in-house conversation now but how does it work are those pre-recorded do you do
0: them live how does it work normally richard well um, when I originally started to doing that, that earlier slot at 10 to 7 called Prayer, Prayer for the Day, which no longer exists as such, I pre-recorded, you pre-recorded a month at a time. Then I got so bored with that, I started to go in live. And the extraordinary thing is that for a very long time, I did them live with no producer, nobody knowing that I was doing it, until David Winter, who was... This, the uh, head of religious broadcasting and I woke up in the middle of the night one re- night and realised that Richard Harris had been doing this every Friday all through the Falklands War, the sinking of Belgrano, with no <laughs> producer chasing the script at all. But, uh, said he woke up in a cold sweat, but I, mean, but I always point out actually there were n- no complaints, as so far as I know of my <laughs> concert. So I basically like doing it live. There's much more mm. sense of adrenaline about doing mm. things live. So. Now, although we can, during COVID, of course, we had to pre-record, mm. but now, uh, although it's quite a sweat getting into the studio early in the morning and all that, actually it's worth it because the immediacy of it.
1: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Well, we'll we'll talk a bit more about, you know, the, your influence in that area of the media and so on later on in the show. Um, obviously, uh, after, you know, these periods of ministry, you went on to a significant post becoming Dean of King's College London. Um, That was obviously quite a different sort of environment, much more of an academic one. What were some of the highlights from that period of your life?
0: Well, I think that one of the significant things about that was that King's is situated in the strand. It has a very, very important uh, war studies department. Is very close to a number of other major think tanks thinking about the international institute for strategic studies and a lot of other things. It was at the height of the issue of the debate over the morality of nuclear weapons. Um, so I got involved in a number of think tanks around there, uh, and we had close contact with the you know minister, minister more, more, you know ministry of defense and so on. Mm. So it was a very good opportunity to link to link in with people who are thinking about real issues in a very, mm. very dangerous world. Mm. So I think that was one of the most important aspects of my, of my time at King's. Um, and that's one of the advantages of, of being in London rather than being in Oxford or Cambridge, because you are close to some of these people who are actually shaping our lives, both intellectually and practically
1: absolutely so i think
0: that's probably one of the i mean i love my time of kings it was a great job it left me much more free than any other job i've ever had you know in order to do these kind of things to make a contribution in the public realm
1: but one day much to your surprise a rather fancy looking letter dropped through your <laughs> yes. letterbox um, inviting you to yeah. become the
0: bishop of oxford i mean yeah. that did that come completely out of the blue i Richard? promise it came completely out of the blue. I was blissfully happy. In my job at King's, we had our own house uh, in London. I had a young family growing up. I didn't follow church appointments. I didn't even know that Diocese of Oxford was vacant. I had no, absolutely no idea it was very vacant. As I say, I was immersed in my present door. Suddenly, this rather smart looking envelope arrived, and it was from Mrs. Thatcher saying, Would she allow my name to go forward to the Queen to be nominated as Bishop of Oxford? And my the first thought of my wife and myself was rather a bit of gloom, frankly, because we were so settled in our present mm. life. Um, and we didn't really fancy the idea of disrupting and going to a you know, rather different, rather more demanding kind of job anyway. So, but obviously you can't really turn down a job like that.
1: Well, and you didn't. So what what years were you Bishop of Oxford I was Bishop for?
0: of Oxford for 19 years, from 1987 to 2006. Nineteen eighty-seven right. to 2019 So it was a good, it was a good long stint.
1: I mean, lots of people obviously, when they think of Oxford, think of the university and you know the tradition there. But what what does that role really encompass? If you could sum up, you know, the the role of a bishop of Oxford, what what's going on?
0: Yes, it's a mistake to think of it entirely in terms of the university. First of all, there, there were five universities in the diocese. It's a vast diocese; covers the diocese, the counties of Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire. The great advantage, from the point of the Bishop of Oxford, is that it has an area system. So there were three area bishops with their own responsibilities for their own areas: the Bishop of Reading, the Bishop of Buckingham, the Bishop of Dorchester, who looked after rural Oxfordshire, which did leave the Bishop of Oxford time, not only to give a sense of coherence and purpose to the diocese as a whole, but also to be able to contribute something on the on the national on the national scene. Mm. And it was a wonderful diocese. Uh, Uh, To be be in a lot of very able people, a lot of very committed people, uh, people who share my views on things like the ordination of women. Uh, So I was very blessed.
1: You, you say in the book that in some ways you found it easier to be a bishop than a parish priest. What do you mean by that?
0: And I do. I mean it. I actually mean it. Because <laughs> if anybody wanted to get hold of me as bishop, well, first of all, they had to get through the switchboard. And then they had to get through my secretary and then the chaplain. So, you know, you had to, they had to be. They had to have something important to get mm. to get through. But uh, as a vicar, as a parish priest, you're at everybody's beck and call. There's a knock on the door at 10 o'clock at nine. Somebody wants a church hall keys. Mm-hmm. Or they've left their car in the car park, you know, <laughs> and also at least still as a bishop, you have a certain amount of status in the community too often i'm afraid the parish priests their their role is not properly valued today, and you know people wonder about the morale of the clergy it's not so much overwork, uh, mm. what it is is that the public role of the clergy is not as not publicly validated you know in the way that it it once was and that is very very sapping for morale
1: yes i can understand that obviously the life of a bishop is is very different in that sense to a parish priest it's a lot more about being the public face of the church in the local area um i guess that involved a number of you know occasions when you were opening schools or or visiting Mm -hmm. uh, you know institutions and things I, i mean at but obviously, you you become a significant voice in national debates in the church. Um, you mentioned already women's ordination. Um, that obviously, women that, that I think women began to be ordained in the Church of England. I think it was 1995, wasn't it? What What do you remember as being sort of some of the significant moments in in the run up to that, Richard?
0: Well, I got first got involved when I was at Dean of Kings because uh, at that time the Uh, reaction against the ordination of women was being led by uh, Graham Leonard, the Bishop of London. And so I organized a, a letter which was signed by a distinguished Roman Catholic theologian and a distinguished Orthodox theologian pointing out to the Bishop of London that his arguments against the ordination of women were fundamentally theologically flawed and I still regard that as actually significant to get Roman Catholic support and Orthodox support, to show that there was nothing theologically in principle against the ordination of women. That's when I first got ordained. Now, when I went to the Diocese of Oxford, uh, the Diocese of Oxford is predominantly in favor of the ordination of women, and obviously not entirely. There's a very mm-hmm. st- strong mm-hmm. element against both Anglo Catholic uh, and also conservative evangelical, but on the whole, the Diocese was in favor. But when it came to the crucial debate at Synod, in fact, it was the the vote of one of our lay members which actually made the ordination of women possible. It was a woman who'd been uh, elected on an anti-ordination of woman, women ticket, mm. who changed her mind Gosh. and abstained in the final vote. And I'll never forget her sitting there absolutely isolated when the vote was was first announced, because you know, obviously people who had who, elected her were not, were not at all pleased about this and she did feel very good, but it was actually a crucial vote Gosh. at the time. But yes. the Dacis as a whole, as I say, was, has been very, very, was, was and still is very supportive of the ordination of women. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective, balanced, relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only
1: £5 for three months. We'll talk about the title of the book, um, The Shaping of a Soul, because I know that's a lot of thought went into that. Um, but first of all, Pentregarth. Could you tell us why why in in the title you you chose as well, a lord?
0: Well, if you've got a name like Harrys, where there might be other Harrys, uh, you have to have what is called a nomen dignitatum, a sort of uh, something to identify you and com- distinguish you from others. Anyway, you're meant to hold, have a proper place, mm. uh, but for various reasons I won't bore you with. Pentrigarth is simply a row of five cottages. It's not, people say, "Where's Pentrigarth?" Can't find it, and I said, "You won't find it." Simply a row of five small cottages. My grandfather lived in number two. My parents lived in number three. So,
1: there you go. There you go. Well, I, I think that was lovely when I when I read that in the book. Um, is the life of a lord as
0: glamorous as we all assume it is, Richard? Uh, no, not 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 at all. In fact, uh, I'm glad it's now Richard because I've now got. So many titles of different kinds. It's just a relief to be mm. Richard, <laughs> which is what name I was born with, and I'm very glad to have. Tell
1: tell us though. I mean, what what do do the duties involve? I mean, is it essentially up to you? To what extent you are yes, I'm in what, Parliament I'm, and involved? I'm, in what
0: so I'm what is called a a crossbench peer, as you know. All and bishops have some time in the house of lords as, as a lord spiritual but when you retire as a lord spiritual you lose your place in the house of lords but i found that i was recycled uh, <laughs> as a secular cross bench fear so i'm independent politically so the house of lords has all these political appointments but also a good bunch about 20 percent of people in different ways or forms of lives lawyers uh, nurses and so on uh, who who try to bring an independent point of view? It's entirely up to you whether you go in or not, mm-hmm. or the contribution you you make. Uh, I have tried over the years to to pursue various um, specialized issues, uh, human rights issues. One mm-hmm. of the issues I'm very committed to is the Dalits, the former mm-hmm. Untouchables in in, in India, uh, but more generally, uh, human rights. I'm very concerned about. West Papua, which has been occupied by Indonesia for about the last 40 years. Uh, So I tend to focus on some sort of slightly neglected, unfashionable human rights issues.
1: Yes, uh, obviously, it does give you a platform um, to be able to highlight some of those important issues. Interestingly, the, the subject of the fact that the bishops do have an automatic place in the house of lords came, came under scrutiny again recently. Um, you may have been aware of this Sandy yeah. Toxvig, who's a well-known broadcaster um, uh, essentially had, had been sort of dialoguing um, with Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury over the issue of sexuality and so on. And then sort of took out a video, put out a video on Twitter where she sort of stood standing in front of the houses of parliament said, you know, we there are only two countries in the world where uh, religious uh, people get an automatic seat in government: Iran and the UK. Uh, and said, you know, the, it's high time that we abolish this idea that Lord that, that the Lords automatically see Church of England priests, uh, bishops in in their ranks. So, what 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 was what are your thoughts on that? It's obviously not a new issue. It's one I'm sure you've come across. No, but, but it's Sandy, very important. Yes, to ahead.
0: understand. It's very important, I think, Justin, to understand that establishment is not a single thing. It is a rope made up of a number of different threads, and you can cut some of these threads and still have establishment. And bishops in the House of Lords are not essential to establishment. The linchpin of establishment, and this I think is crucial, is the coronation of the sovereign by the Archbishop of Canterbury in a religious ceremony. That is the heart uh, Mm. of establishment. If a sovereign decided they no longer wanted to have a religious coronation, that would be the end of establishment. But until then, you have establishment, and you can change that establishment. The point is also that establishment, the nature of establishment, has changed, is changing, and can change more. Mm. Um, One of the obvious ways in which establishment has changed recently is the church basically now chooses its own bishops. In the past, it was prime ministers who chose Mm. The bishops that has changed and there's no reason why bishops should not be kicked out of the house of Lords. i'm not saying it's a good thing i'm saying they could still be kicked out and you could still have establishment Mm. so we need to be quite clear what establishment is and if you really want a a disestablished church it means that you're going to actually end having a a monarchy a monarchy at least who was was crowned in a religious ceremony
1: well it's obviously a live issue as we you know, are uh, heading towards the coronation of King Charles now. Obviously, we don't expect any changes in perhaps you know in his time, but who knows what the future may be? And and as you say, the, the, these things may be brought to a head uh, by future monarchs. But but just sticking with you know, we can't cover disestablishment as a whole. But just just in terms of if you were to make a defence of the role of bishops in the House of Lords as automatic appointments, as it were, if you were speaking to Sandy Toxfig, what what might you say,
0: Richard? Um, I wouldn't go to the stake over the issue, to be honest. Mm. I wouldn't go over to the stake. It's a great, I mean, I do believe in establishment and I do believe uh, that it is good for the country as a whole to have a monarch and to have a monarch whose vocation is essentially a religious vocation, but I don't see that tied out with bishops in the House of Lords. And I don't see bishops there having a kind of monopoly of morality or or wisdom. They don't. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to say that bishops in the House of Lords are usually respected and appreciated by other members there. They try to make a a serious, thoughtful contribution. Um, uh, And I think it does keep alive the idea that, uh, in the end, uh, Parliament sees itself as accountable to God Together with prayers, I mean, every day in Parliament, both in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, begins with prayers taken by a bishop in the House of mm. Lords and by the chaplain in the House of Commons. And this makes it quite clear uh, that the people who are there are accountable not only to the people who have elected them, if in the Commons, but ultimately accountable to a higher power and a higher righteousness, God himself. That is symbolised both by the prayers and by the presence of the bishops there.
1: Mm obviously that debate was partly catalyzed by the ongoing discussions in the church of England around sexuality, uh, marriage and so on. Um, I'm sure you're, you've been very you know, aware of that, that debate as it's rumbled on, there's been this living in love and faith consultation across the whole of the church of England. And then obviously most recently, um, the adoption by the general synod of these prayers, um, and prayers that that can be used going forward uh, to bless people who come to their local parish priest seeking a blessing for their same-sex marriage or um, civil partnership. Um, you've you've actually been a supporter of these sorts of changes. Did 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 your views change on this at some point? And what perhaps was the the catalyst for that?
0: Richard? Yes, I mean I think. Um, younger people don't perhaps realize the extraordinary change that had taken place in in my lifetime the people of of my age you know when we went to school this is a subject uh you know which, which people didn't even dare mention hardly knew that it was there we didn't hardly knew that people were attracted to people of the same sex uh, and it, it it was kind of totally beyond the pale except for obviously people who 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 were uh, mm. so not my generation, we blew, grew up in a total sort of blindness and ignorance about, about all this. And I say first, I started to think about it and change my mind at the heart of the debate, whatever it was, 30, 40 years ago, when I read uh, some biographies, autobiographies of people who were attracted to members of the same sex. And what emerged from that was that they were clearly attracted to people of the same sex from an early age. And that it wasn 't simply a question of sexuality, it was a whole person love and and this made me think that this wasn 't simply a life choice which you decided on later on. this is something you actually grew up and discovered that that you were that 's started to to change my mind and then I think in the same way that I changed my mind on divorce because when I was first ordained, I was opposed to people being allowed to, to remarry in church after divorce. What changed my mind then was partly looking again at the New Testament ethics and seeing that Jesus wasn't that kind of legislator, but just as significant was the experience of members of the congregation I knew who ve- had very, very unhappy first marriages, but they married much too young or been pushed into, and had a very happy, supportive second marriage. So it was the actual experience of a really good marriage which I really made me realise that actually, this is something that the church ought to bless, and it is quite obvious that there are many lasting, lifelong partnerships of people of the same sex, whether w- woman, women or, or men, which have, have been blessed. So that was the other reason which changed my my mind. But, I was going
1: to say, I mean, obviously, that to some extent, that that's an argument from you know experienced uh, seeing and uh, and and witnessing the lives of those who are in same sex relationships what did you what did did you you have to kind of approach the text in a different way uh, from the bible in, in as much as obviously many people will say well yeah, yeah. there is arguably a precedent yeah. for s- divorce yeah. in some instances yeah. from scripture whereas for, for same-sex relationships, you know, it would be very difficult to find any precedent for that yeah. in Scripture. Um, Romans 1 seems yeah. to speak against it. Obviously, the picture yeah. throughout Scripture yeah. is of yeah. male-female marriage. Yeah. What, what do you say to that?
0: Well, first first of all, if I may could just re-emphasize my first point, the importance of ex- of experience. There was a time when the Church of England was totally opposed to contraception. What made the bishops change their mind? It was the experience of lay people actually using contraceptive methods and having their marriage enriched as a result of it, instead of a woman having to give birth to a child every year, could choose to have what two or three children and have a much more ordered sort of family. It was the actual experience of lay men and women in the Church of England which forced bishops in the Church of England to change their mind. It was their experience. And so i I, th- I do think we have to take account experience here, and if there are loving stable same sex relationships, that is a factor in the equation now, in terms of scripture, I just think that the the kind of condemnation of same sex relationships in the in the Bible uh, is not ex- not exact not the same as a lifelong committed partnership, particularly one which is done under God. I think that what primarily is being referred to in the in the New Testament is the kind of promiscuity uh, uh, which was so rife in the ancient world. And, of course, it's so rife in the, in the modern world. Because what the church ought to be complaining about now and condemning it, is, you know, the extraordinary light-hearted attitude to sex in our society, this very casual attitude to sex. That, to me, is far more damaging to society than a you know, stable, loving, same-sex relationships.
1: Obviously, there are those who, who disagree with your perspective, Richard. And, and obviously, you know, there were extended debates at yeah. General Synod on on these prayers. And, and it's very difficult, potentially to see the, the Church of England remaining united. Um, what What do you think the future is going to be for the Church of England?
0: Well, let me say first of all that I believe that the great mistake the church made was was not to, was, for 25 or 30 years ago to welcome civil partnerships. I think if we had welcomed civil partnerships, and sometimes bishops now complain, say that they did, they didn't. I was there mm-hmm. voting in favor of them. A lot of the bishops, I'm voting against it. But if we had welcomed civil partnerships and said that we will bless these, then I think we wouldn't have had the same kind of raucous debate over the question whether they should be the same status as as marriage. In the same way that a single person living their Christian life has a a vocation which is uh, different but equal to somebody who's married, I would regard a civil partnership, blessed by God, as a vocation of different but equal to, to, to marriage. There's no particular reason why it should be called marriage. It's slightly surprising it should be called marriage. And let me say also that I do have a very great deal of understanding and sympathy with those who take a traditional view. After all, it has been the view for hundreds and thousands of of years. Um, It is very difficult in certain cultures, as we know, for for this to be accepted. Um, and after all, the change has been so rapid in my, just in my lifetime. This mm. has been this radical change. So I do have a lot of sympathy and understanding. But nevertheless, I th- uh, as I say, I think the mistake was made 30 or 40 years ago where we should have seen this idea of a committed partnership was something very, very significant, different from marriage, mm. uh, but capable of being blessed
1: given that we are where we are and obviously there are you know parts of the church of england that want to go even further and they do want to see full full full-bodied marriage as it were made an option for same-sex couples in the church do whereas that would be anathema to, to other parts of the church um do do you see the church of england being able to hold together these very different factions or or will there be some kind of i don't know um settlement uh, in the end that, that i think
0: all i can all i can say uh justin is that the church of england in the past has been pretty good at holding together apparently contradictory positions um and it may be unsatisfactory it may be a fudge but it's better than pushing certain people are out or or having yet another another split um mm. and th- that i think the Church of England is an extraordinarily untidy, unsatisfactory place to be as a Christian. One would like something much more clear-cut. You know, there's a lot of me that likes things to be very clear-cut indeed. But given the choice of either yet another split or people being pushed out, it seems to me best to try to hold together in this muddled middle
1: Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're
0: enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favor right now? It'll take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, um, I, I I can imagine that this has been true of many issues, but mm. this is obviously the, the biggest one of our time just now. Let's move on to, you know, in a sense, the bigger picture and sexuality is only one part of other much bigger changes in culture that have happened during your lifetime, Richard. Um, I mean, we live in a far more post-Christian culture today than probably when you were first ordained yeah. Um as you've seen, culture move you know further and further towards secularism, away from sort of an a, even a, an understanding of the Christian story. What what how how do you think your sort of approach to telling the Christian story has changed? What what do you think you need to? What's different about the way you would approach sharing the Christian faith today with perhaps when you began your ministry some fifty or more years ago?
0: Well, a very big influence on my life, perhaps the biggest intellectual influence, was a man called Donald McKinnon, professor at uh, Cambridge when I was there. And his inaugural lecture was called The Borderlands of Theology. And he argued, you can't do theology today except on the borderlands. You've got to feel the incursions. And I've always sought to do all my Christian communication on the borderlands whether it's preaching or whether it's broadcasting. And that means actually bearing in mind very strongly the kind of real questions which are on the minds of the people out there. And it's no good pretending that those questions are not there. They, they are and some very powerful objections that they have to be addressed. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to give a great lecture on apologetics. That's not that. It just means it means being sensitive. I mean, let me, and it's not all to do with intellectual things, a lot is it to do with changes of feeling and changes of attitude, changes in moral understanding. I mean, the most obvious one is you know, the way the last for the world for the last 30, 40 years has been dominated by the idea of self-development. Uh and that, that is the BL and all this. Develop yourself and all. Well, the church, if one's being serious, should take this seriously because it has something very important and significant to say about the nature of self-development. So it's being, trying to be sensitive to where the, where, the, where, our, where our culture is. But it is a very difficult culture to operate in. First mm. of all, within the wider media, there is a culture of disdain, as you know, as well as I do, a culture of disdain, what Schleiermacher called, you know, the culture despises, dominates so much of our media so that Christianity is not taken seriously in a way that it ought to, as a coherent intellectual uh, position which people uh, of intelligence can adopt. Um, And Rowan Williams, when he became Archbishop of Canterbury, said his great ambition was to recapture the imagination of our culture for the Christian faith. And wonderful though his gifts are, he's not done that in his own right, and nor has anybody else. And that is still the challenge, Mm. because to me, the Christian faith is Well, the Christian faith has gripped my imagination. And Mm. it's the most wonderful story that's ever possibly been told about life and about its meaning and what it's all about. Um, And somehow we fail to communicate the extraordinary power and wonder of this understanding of human existence. And it is an that's, of course, why C.S. Lewis is so important. He was one mm. of the few people who could appeal to do it, through you know, people's imagination to do it. So it's not just a question of facing the intellectual questions. It is also actually trying to put it in such a way that the imagination is captured.
1: Yes, I, I think that is a, a great challenge um, because I, I, I sort of live and breathe the world of apologetics. Well, I know you does, do, does, does, exactly, exactly. To some you know, so you've got but I, I i and and there's always that temptation for the apologist to think well if i can just come up with a really good argument for the resurrection no. if i can just get a, a stunning argument for the philosophical existence of god then then but actually i think those arguments they only take you so far as you say the the imagination is is where most of the story is told and and I I think as you as you say, we need more of the C.S. Lewises who sort of brought together the the reason and the imagination mm-hmm. in in that wonderful way. Um, where where can that happen? Where do you think that needs to happen in our culture, Richard? Is it is it these days through filmmaking, through music, through what what do you think of the the, well, there the was, places?
0: There was there was there was a time when some of our very best poets and novelists were presidents, obviously. Uh, in in my time earlier on, T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden, who were huge influences on me. There was a time where uh, novelists like um, Patrick White and and, uh, William Golding wrote about the world from a very, very Christian theological position. There are fewer novelists now, I think, Mm. who are writing. There are some poets. Of course, what there is, though, most remarkably, are musicians. You know, some Mm. of the world's great composers now Composed from a specifically uh, Christian point of view, the, you know, there's there's Pat the the the, the Estonian, you know, there, there's James MacMillan, John Tavener, uh, you know, some of these great composers are, are. Their music is imbued and shaped and driven by their by their Christian faith. So um, there, there's all, there's all sorts of hope, but I would like to see more novelists. Mm. Uh, there are some, mm. there are some, but not not. Quite so many as there were, perhaps thirty or forty years, years ago.
1: Well, w- when it comes to, I suppose, the bigger picture of your life, and obviously you've you've done what you can in the media. Um, you, I know that you were uh, involved in the re of the Christian Evidence Society, which I've been a, a mm. part of for uh, several years. Um, you've you 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 you've done what you can. You fought the good fight to to try and you know <laughs> put Christianity back in the public square and so on. You've you've titled your book. The shaping uh, of a soul. Um, tell us a bit about that. What, what, in what sense? What did you mean by that? What, what are you hoping to express?
0: Well, what I wanted to do was to to look at some of the main influences that had formed me. Here I am, you know, Richard Harris, and rising eighty-seven-year-old gentleman. As the medical records, this eighty-seven-year-old gentleman, as the <laughs> medical records, now now put in. You know, what has shaped me? Why are- why, why, I, why am I who I am? And what are the decisive influences? I wanted to look at those. And partly it's an act of peer us, the book. You know, to pay, I wanted to pay tribute to those people who shaped me, some of the wonderful role models, uh, some of the wonderful books that I've read, which have helped to, helped to, helped to shape me. Uh, so that's the shaping of a, of, of a soul. And in the end, what could be more important than the shaping of a soul, of an individual mm. soul? What has shaped each one of us? Uh, when you look at the end of your life and you look back and try to look at it. But the subtitle of the book is A Life Taken by Surprise, because that is my, my life has been taken totally by surprise. As we were talking about in, a, in the earlier in, interview, my vocation literally came totally out of the brew from a point of view, absolutely out of mm. the brew, total, total surprise. And so much of my, what I've done in my life, you know, ending up doing a lot of broadcasting or writing a lot of books, book, taking me totally, totally by, by surprise. You know, when I was first th- thought of myself as being ordained, I just simply thought of myself as being a, you know, a parish piece trudging around the the, uh, the streets of some dark northern city, bringing light and <laughs> comfort to people. I mean, i had a very naive kind of uh, view view of it. Why well, should I think of that? I don't, don't quite know. Perhaps it was my years in others' But so everything I've done in life has, has really taken me by by surprise.
1: Mm, yeah, uh, and and we can only hope and pray that the God who does surprise us will continue to surprise us. Yeah, um, that, b- yeah. Because because I think we can often get rather jaded, even cynical in yeah. in our post Christian culture, uh, and yeah. we we never know actually what God God no, may exactly. be doing in the background. <laughs> yeah. um, what what what's your what's your hope? I suppose you know um, for those who are. Perhaps coming up behind you for those who are maybe just on the at the start of their own Christian ministry. Um, where, what what would your hope and prayer be for those who are maybe?
0: Well, first on... of all, first of all, I think people are being ordained today are being very brave because I think it is a much more difficult environment than when I was first ordained. I think it, I, I don't underestimate the difficulties of it at all. Clergy in us that haven't got the status that they did once, they, they don't have the resources they run, they don't have the support that. They, they want it's a very difficult job. So, you know, I do say, you know, God bless you that you're actually coming forward. And there are a good number of people still coming forward, and that is that is good. Um, and about I think that the only way, as we were saying earlier on, is that we do have to take very seriously where people are, what they're really feeling, what they're, what they're really, really thinking, and, and address those questions. And then we can, as you say, we can just trust God. I mean, I do believe... That God is is there, and will bring something out of it. Yes, but yes.
1: um, p- perhaps you know <laughs> um, Matthew Arnold's Sea of Faith, which has had its w- long withdrawing. rule, will will come back in in some form. You you never know.
0: Yeah, but but uh, we can't I we can't really expect to. I mean, I think uh, surely Christianity perhaps is essentially a minority religion. I mean, when mm. Christ says, you know, Come follow me, and he who follows me, take up his cross. I mean, that's not a call for a. You know, for a majority religion, isn't True. it? I mean, it, you know, it, 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 if we take the if we take the call of Christ and Christianity seriously, uh, it would be very surprising if suddenly, you know, it became fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> Christianity in the past has sometimes become fashionable, of course, and hasn't always done it good when it has become fashionable.
1: Indeed. Well, it's been, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, Richard. And you Thank Justin. you very much for this book. I'll just remind listeners, um, The Shaping of a Soul, A Life Taken by Surprise, it's available now. Uh, I'll make sure there's a link from today's show. If you're listening via podcast, uh, you can go and find us uh, on the podcast over at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. And um, don't forget that the profile is brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. If you want to find out more from them and get their latest issue, plus the next two print ones for just five pounds, they've got a special offer on premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. Um, For now, Richard, thank you so much for being my guest on the profile today.
0: Thank you, Justin, for asking me.
1: I've been Justin Briley, and there'll be another fascinating guest telling us about their ministry, life and faith on the show next week. For now, God bless you and see you next time.
0: You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.